Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. This episode of Pretty Much Pop is brought to you by ZocDoc. Download the free ZocDoc app for the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment at ZocDoc.com slash PMP. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, probably just a simulation, but who really cares? Today we're discussing the Matrix franchise in light of the new film Matrix Resurrections. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I have the cheat codes to the Matrix, which I use to get these fancy socks. I'm Erica Spires, and it's been 60 years since our last podcast together, but I've only aged four months. I'm Brian Hurt, and I took the orange pill, and dude, you do not want to know what that does. And our special guest... (laughs) I'm Abe Linsenmeyer. I was an agent put in the Matrix to kill Neo, but I was incompetent, so now I'm just a debugger. (laughs) Welcome, Abe. Abe, you have the same last name as Mark. What gives? It's incredible. I'm his son. That is incredible. Don't ask how that lines up with what I just said. Who is 21 now? Yep. Wow, that's weird. I had to think about he it for is a second. of podcast age. Yep. So it seemed about time we watched this movie together in the theater. I was falling asleep during part of it, as is normal <gasps> for theater experiences for me. But I was at least 75% aware, even during those parts. And most of it I was, I was very much aware of. And then we have tried to catch up. We just watched the, uh, well, Abe was kind of coming in and out, but. I'd seen the, them already. Uh, the sequels, the initial two sequels. And I was just reading about the video games and how really we didn't miss much. Yeah, Abe, did you play the video games? I did not, no. I was barely even aware of their existence, except for the one tech demo they released for the Unreal Engine recently, which hardly counts. Yes, they were like 2003, 2005, so it would have been three and five, respectively, unless I pushed the video games on him. Er- he was an early adapter. <laughs> Try, trying to say, because... <laughs> I got to say, sleeping a little bit through these movies is part of the experience. I rewatched one, two, and three, and of course I watched four. And even though I really loved the first one, I still nodded off a little bit. I guess I just might have been tired, but for two and three, man, you do not need to be totally awake to the whole thing to know what's going on. It still would have been nice to have seen those before seeing the new one because I was kind of frustratingly, I don't remember exactly what happened with Neo and Smith at the end of number three. There was a lot of exposition, but it sort of didn't help. And actually, then when I did see them, I feel like like that wouldn't have even addressed my problems, but I would have felt more comfortable about number four if I had just experienced those rather than just experiencing number one. There's always a moment in these movies where I know something has been explained to me but I don't really understand it. And I just stop listening. And I'm like, well, something's happening that I don't quite get, but I'll pick it back up when it culminates. And I feel like this one to me did a bit better job of walking me through that long walk. So when do we spoil the crap out of this movie? I don't know. Maybe we should start with the first movie since the only reason why we care about the new movie is because it is a celebration. This thing that was so big in our pop culture and Even if its immediate sequels were a little bit forgettable, the first one certainly had enough of an impact that people are still talking about it. I don't know. Do you agree that it is just such a landmark of cinema? Abe, why don't you start us? 
Well, it's a little weird for me because I wasn't alive when it came out. So it's hard to say like how action movies were changed by its creation, but it was certainly a landmark for my own movie watching in terms of just the fact that it's still one of my favorite action movies. Is it because of the action or is it because of the philosophy or the combination or what? I think it's a combination of things. The action is certainly a big part of it. I am very easily entertained by that kind of thing, but I think the greater context with the philosophical setup lends it a little bit more power and gravitas than just if you were to show me those action scenes back to back without any context, which is not true of all properties. I was listening to a commentary about fighting sequences and how this one feels more John Wick than Matrix. Like, it feels a little bit more brawly in terms of the fight sequences rather than like full-on kung fu. I think that that is probably true, but I did not like going back and watching the first one in particular. I remember that being a lot cooler in the beginning, like when I first saw it. And so like part of that is just like it's iconic. So, of course, anything that's iconic, you rewatch it years down the line. You're going to feel like it's a little tired. But at the time, there was nothing else that we had seen like it. So I didn't really mind that they delved into other kinds of fight styles, but I could have gone for a little bit more of the super cool. I don't know. What do they call that camera shot when you can move it? And then I mean, they always talk about bullet time, right? And this. Yeah. Slowing down of time. And it was very much computer animation as well as just computer processing that allowed the ability to move a camera around either a slowed or a stopped shot. And I don't think we had ever seen anything quite like it before then that made it maybe better than it would have been otherwise much the way that you know terminator 2 and the metal man and some of the effects that we had seen in that movie i I think elevated terminator 2 in a way that it wasn't maybe as great as we thought it was at the time i think the effects were groundbreaking and also put to really good use there's a late episode of community i think it's in the last season where they really talk about the failure of virtual worlds as portrayed in media and that ridiculous Michael Crichton movie with uh, Michael Douglas, uh, Disclosure, I think it's called, and Virtuosity and the Lawnmower Man, and like how virtual reality just like sucked in everything we saw. And it was this, this failed promise of ridiculousness. And the Wachowskis, Wachowskis, there were some things, they managed to create a really compelling virtual world tied into a really good story that to me always seemed like the sequels prove just how good The Matrix itself was, that it could have gone wrong so easily. And a lot of parts of episodes two and three did go wrong to the point where I think it just proves what a tight, genius little movie The Matrix was. I enjoyed rewatching it and I did not particularly enjoy rewatching two and three. And at what point do we reveal how we felt about Resurrections? Let's keep positive for the moment and then we'll, we'll, we'll leak. Well, who said, we'll who said it wasn't going to be positive, Mark? <laughs> I actually, on something you just said, Brian, I hadn't thought of that. So many virtual worlds before this, it does seem like they used a lot of like the latest technology to show like more computer animation in that. And I think maybe part of the brilliance of this was that it was actually just our world. So the whole idea is that this thing that feels real is not real. The thing that looks real, the thing that looks like your normal life is not real. Rather than a computer generated world that we're supposed to somehow buy into as the audience that that's a real virtual world. And of course, we're not going to buy that because it doesn't look like our world. But it's a mimetic world, right? They stretch gravity and things are hyper-realistic in some ways. Everybody is wearing gray clothes, except for the people who are meant to stand out somehow. 
So it's not quite our world, but yeah, you're right. The way it's portrayed, it is a cagey move on their part. And it's much easier to buy than the ridiculous animation. So Brian, it's interesting that you separate out the camera work from the fight choreography. So it's Yuan Wuping, who did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Kung Fu Hustle and things on all the original movies. But of course, he was present for all those original ones, not for the new one. The camera work presumably was, you know, consistent throughout. I don't know if there was a major cinematographer that left or, or what the uh, influence of the different Wachowskis were to the final product as directors, but certainly the techniques were available. One thing that makes The Matrix itself so exhilarating, I'm thinking about like the original Superman movie where you'll believe a man could fly because that was such a big thing at the time. When you set up in your world that these are the laws and it's pretty much the ordinary world. I don't know, when he starts doing superhero stuff for the first time, then you have a similar thing to the original Superman of like, wow, this is freaking cool. Once that's been established in Matrix 2, then it's not as special anymore. Like everybody can just go crazy. There's very little stakes. It's more like, uh, I kept thinking about Free Guy that came out this year as like, this is, we're establishing from the beginning that this is a video game. It's only a surprise to some of the people in it that it's not a video game. But, you know, you expect people to define the laws of physics and stuff constantly, and it's not going to have great dramatic effect. If there are huge fight scenes or things blowing up because, you know, it has already been described to you. Like I had to remind myself while watching Free Guy that they actually still had to do these stunts is just as much of a cinematic feat that I should be amazed by and wowed by that, you know, all these huge things are happening. But because narratively we know that it is fiction, like it's no big deal. And so that's how Matrix 2 and 3 felt to me. Okay, do you ever feel that the fight sequences aren't special at all because of that? Because you know that once people know the rules, they can kind of control everything. So like, how many times do people shoot guns? And it just doesn't matter. I think Mark had it exactly right with the word stakes, that I felt like they did exist in the first movie. And by the second one, very little. There's also that inverse law that the more bad guys you have, the weaker they get. And apparently it holds true for velociraptors. And for Agent Smith, (laughs) because I truly like I think that he could potentially have killed Neo in the first movie when it was just one on one in the subway before he got his full mojo. Whereas by the time he's fighting literally dozens of them in in episode two and reloaded, it's like, come on, nothing's going to happen to Neo. It was just foolishness. I think there is a way that they could have made that transition a little bit more gracefully just from an action perspective. And I'm having a hard time explaining it without referencing One Punch Man, which I don't know that any of you have seen. Describe it. That's that's a fine insertion (laughs) from the younger generation. Yeah. So One Punch Man is an anime and the main character is so the whole point of the show is that he's so ridiculously powerful that he has yet to encounter an opponent that he couldn't kill in one punch. So explain the title then. (laughs) (laughs) And the sort of challenge of writing something like that, which is kind of, I think, executed very well in that case, is that how can you have stakes with a main character who is so over the top such that nothing can challenge him in that way, which I think is what they kind of made Neo into in the sequels. And what they tried to do in The Matrix and did, I think, very successfully in One Punch Man is that the things that you care about aren't whether One Punch Man is going to kill the bad guy. You know that eventually he's going to show up. It is the acts of desperation and the heartfelt moments that occur in the space between when the threat appears and when he kills it. Because most people don't know that he's going to show up and kill it in one punch. They think that it's their lives on the line and they lay down their lives and make these great sacrifices and have all these moments 
before he eventually shows up to deal the final blow. And I think they struggle with that in the Matrix sequels because Neo spends a lot of those movies like stranded on an inter on a liminal space subway station because they're not sure how to have stakes when he is a part of things. He spends the whole highway chase sequence flying around the planet to get to him so that it can be meaningful that the other characters are doing things in his absence, I guess. So the stakes were a little bit more there this time because he has to kind of relearn what he could do. And I think that way this film worked a little bit better. Oh, don't go negative. We're not talking about the fourth movie. (laughs) Okay, so just throwing it out there, I enjoyed the fourth movie a lot more than I thought I would. And I'm just going to introduce that idea right now. Well, let's go around. And I suspect I liked it even more than you did. What did you think, Abe? I liked some of the writing and I liked the fourth wall breaking goofiness at the beginning. But as an action movie and a nostalgia trip, I found it fairly disappointing. In what I've been reading, there's a lot of division about the two sections of the movie. That You've got the first half that is a lot of meta commentary, which is clever that it's in there. I know Brian has often said my early instincts about fourth wall breaking and stuff is that you can kind of excuse anything by making a joke about it. But when we've had these conversations before, Brian has always been like putting a bell on the fact that this is basically a mistake or something doesn't make it better. In fact, might even make it worse is that I think it can fly or it could sink to the bottom of the ocean. It's like one or the other. So there's very little in between on that. And I think it totally succeeded. I was so impressed with how they chose to handle the source material. And I was, I didn't go in with any expectation that that was what they were going to do. And I was very pleasantly surprised by that. Mark, you still are deflecting. What did you think of this movie? I did not have an enjoyable experience. I wish I had had time to see it a second time. Now that I've reviewed Matrix 3, I've just been reading about it and seeing explainer videos and things in the last day or two. So, you know, I found the first half, I think who you see the movie with, we've talked about this with, definitely infects your level of enjoyment. And so, Yeah, I was going to say that. And you <laughs> took your kid and he probably wanted candy. And then he kept saying, who's that, dad? Who's that, dad? <laughs> Just put a pain in the ass. My wife was very impatient through the first half of like, oh, you see, now the rest of the story comes out. All right, I, well, I got you. Know, you. So, so this has made me think about this more after the fact. I, I think I was enjoying the first half, but I can see where she's coming from in terms of the impatience for... You want them to start shooting guns. You want him to be heroic. You want him to, and it takes so long for him to get to that point. And it's hard to care. I don't know that these other characters, the new Morpheus, the new pilot or whatever, that these were set up in a way that would make you care about them, that it was sort of just something to get past. So I was a little irritated by the opening. You know, we had just seen the first Matrix the night before. So the fact that they're showing like, the doppelganger version of Trinity in the opening scene, I sort of got the point. Like you could have just repeated one line and that would have had the same effect to me as what was essentially like a 10 minute sequence of we're going to reshow you what was in the first movie, but add some observers that are commenting on it. Like, so that did not right off the bat did not strike me as great. I liked it better when they were more talking in the focus group about what made the video game trilogy the Matrix trilogy in the new Matrix world, what made that successful? I like that a lot better as the sort of meta commentary and the reflection on why this movie even existed that I was all fine with. When it actually moved to the second half and became a big action movie, there was enough from the first half that I wasn't fully understanding. We can talk about whether it's just my fault, you know, whether it's or Erica's fault, if you're saying that there's just something that you didn't get, you're just going to kind of 
roll with it or ignore it. My reaction was, I don't feel like this has been explained to me well enough, probably because I didn't have the third movie so clearly in mind that I'm now irritated. And so all the rest of this just endless action was just wearying on me, was just like physically assaulting my ears. So I'm an old man. That's what it comes down to. What do you think about the action part, Abe? Part two of the movie. So I have sort of mixed feelings. I think that like we were talking earlier about how this felt more like John Wick than it did like a martial arts movie. And I kind of missed that. I had a hard time following what was going on in the action sequences because they cut every quarter of a second to a new angle. Whereas in the first movie, you get like five or 10 seconds of just them going back and forth trading punches. Maybe it's because of the way they set up the scenes, or maybe it's the fight choreography, but it felt much more intense and sort of personal and real than the way it jumped around in this part. In terms of the contrast with the first part and the kind of unrelenting action, I mostly understood what was going on, but I had a hard time... Caring? (laughs) Or... or... Uh, Sort of. It was not obvious until the end of the movie why it was important to free Trinity or why it was jeopardizing the safety of the new city to do that. I liked at the end of the movie when they showed Trinity showing up and being badass. One of the articles talks about how she's the one who gets the sort of heroic character arc and becomes the new superhero. And if that had happened halfway through the movie, then I think I really would have enjoyed it. But I felt like it kind of came out of nowhere at the end and left me wondering what I had been watching in the meantime. I'm just looking at some trivia just to throw in about the fight sequences. This is IMDb trivia, which I love. Unlike the first two sequels, no second unit was used for any of the action sequences as Lana Wachowski directed all the scenes herself. So for whatever reason, that was intentionally filmed differently than before. What you were describing, Abe of the Trinity feeling a little, I don't want to say tacked on, but maybe it came too late. It was intentional through the whole movie, but maybe it could have been presented in a way that worked a little bit better. In the opening, as the title appears, it says Matrix Resurrection, and then like this little S appears at the end. I don't know. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not such a good thing. Like, I don't love that. Of course, it's Neo's story. And as much as they went into Trinity, I think they could have gone even further of making it their story instead of just his story. That being said, I really did enjoy it. I didn't have a big problem with the fight sequences. I don't know, to your point, Erica, if Lana Wachowski did normally does the choreography in the other movies that they've done, not to say that Jupiter Ascending or was genius, but I mean, she's a competent, talented director, so... I found the fight scenes almost as tiring as the pontificating in episodes two and three. And I thought that the pontificating was a little less irritating in this movie. Maybe it helped that it was Neil Patrick Harris delivering it. And he is. He was hit with that charm stick, wasn't he? Awesome. Mad. I could hear him say anything. I know. I could pretty much do with fewer action sequences from any movie except for John Wick, because that's what it is. Other than that, I feel like, okay. And I think the reason The Matrix worked for so long was because it showed this different type of action sequence we hadn't seen. So for the fourth time, I'm okay with the fact that they changed it. I'm okay that that maybe we didn't have as much of it. We're going to stop for a little sponsor break. If you've got credit card statements coming in all crazy-like, making you dread opening the mail, you are not alone. The weight of debt can be crippling, but Upstart can help you on your path to financial freedom. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, 
funding personal expenses. Over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Rather than looking at credit score alone, Upstart considers other factors like your income, current employment, and credit history to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in minutes for a loan between $1,000 to $50,000, and you can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. I have done debt consolidation in the past. Maybe this is something you want to look into. I'm hoping Upstart is one of the places you will look into that, but of course, do your research. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URLs. Let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Upstart.com slash pretty. Here's a question that kind of applies to all the movies. There's something about life being meaningful. And at the end of the third movie, Smith even asks, you know, like, what is the point? Why not just be nihilistic? So there's a whole thing about the Matrix. It seems like the only truly meaningful life would be one that faces reality. So in other words, you can't have a meaningful life in the Matrix. And in terms of the exploring the arc of Trinity in the new movie, she loves her kids, right? But her kids are actually computer programs, I guess. They're not actual humans. I mean, this is sort of just a general thing that you think that one of the things you would consider, whether you're going to break out of the Matrix or not, in fact, the most important thing is like, do you have family that are still in the Matrix? Do you then want to help them? Are they actually your biological family? Do you care about that? Like, it's human connections is what would make being in the Matrix, even if right now we are in a Matrix, the fact that we have these family connections, as I sit here with my son, means that I don't want to wake up and lose all of them because I get to know the truth. So this is sort of a starting point about a question of what makes life meaningful. And then you have these AI characters, which are increasingly prominent in the new movies, where you're supposed to care about them too, that there's a little girl who's a program and she'll be deleted But another program has said, oh, you can go to a special place and I'll let you live even though you don't have a function. You know, it really, I think in the new movie, even bends that even further of do you care? You have to have empathy, not just for the two humans, but for all these side characters, some of whom are AIs. And we've established now that even some of the AIs can be good. So that would be the main thing in the first movie that would prevent you from sympathizing with any of them. And your question was? Where do you start? about this. Like, do you sympathize (laughs) with these characters? Like we were just saying in the new movie, we maybe wanted a little more of Trinity's arc because we wanted to, if she's going to be the hero, we want to sympathize with her as well. Do you think these movies work well? Or is this, you know, something that if these are ultimately human story, it's not about the sci-fi, it's not about the philosophy, it's about the love story. Yeah. Do you like it on that level? Absolutely. Neo and Trinity, they're classic and they still work. They still have wonderful chemistry in spite of the fact that everybody loves Keanu Reeves, but he's not a great actor. You just love him. Whoa, whoa. I mean, come on. I love him. Did you know Joey Lawrence actually did most of Matrix 2 instead of Keanu and you just didn't notice? Whoa. One of my college professors who taught my sleep and dreams class had a quote that he used way too much. And that was, dreams are real as long as they last. Can we say more of life? And I feel like we can't really internalize what it's like to get unplugged from the Matrix, but I imagine it is very much like waking up from a dream when like things that seemed very important and very authentic, you realize are just a bunch of nothing. And that includes like your very personal relationships, including your daughter and presumably your son sitting next to you, Mark. And I think about that movie, uh, Defending Your Life. And 
when people die, they go to this kind of this middle ground place to get judged or defend themselves. And they kind of make it so you don't really care that much about the people you've left behind. You remember it. And I guess our town is the same way that you can't maintain these feelings about people when you've crossed into the next place because you wouldn't be functional. All you would be doing is mourning loss. So I I think it's baked into how the Matrix movies are set up, Mark, that when you make it out of the Matrix, that it's just what you thought was a real relationship just wasn't. And you don't mourn it or miss it. Otherwise, all you would be doing is focusing on it. It's kind of like why they stopped investigating headless bodies in that Highlander TV show, because like that show would just be about headless corpses if that was important. So you like, ah, oh, it's not important. And so she realizes the only thing that is actually actually real is her relationship with Neo. And the kids are and they're ephemeral. They're not anything. If you guys had been watching this with me, which I watched, I did not watch it in theaters. I was going to, but uh, ended up watching it at home. And she turns and tells Chad. Awesome. Chad. I really hate that name. And then she like kicks him or something and gets Chad away. And I was like, her kids are still there. I look at Drew and I was like, okay, now beat the hell out of your kids. Let's see it. Because <laughs> they're <laughs> not real anymore. Yeah, it's not like I'm for child abuse. But in that case, like everybody was turning, right? We'd already seen that everybody can be bugged and turn into some version of an agent. So at that point, we know that her kids, they're not real and they're just a program and they're going to turn against her. And so I thought it would be a really funny moment to see her just like, bam, you know, just Trinity, those fake children, because it's such a form of manipulation. And as a woman watching that sequence, maybe it would have gone too far and people would have been like against child abuse, which once again, I am not advocating for. I am saying as a woman or as anybody watching somebody be manipulated through using, well, you're a woman, you're supposed to care about these kids. So therefore, don't you feel bad? Don't you not want to be your own person? Because you have to take care of these kids. Like that is something that women face all the time. She does bring it up when she is kicking the shit out of Neil Patrick Harris's character. Right. And that's for using my kids against me. Yeah. So that was probably a better way to handle it. But in the moment, I was like, I just want her to like go ape on everything, you know, because she had just awakened and it was so cool to see her. And in that way, Mark, I don't feel like it worked quite as well as it should have because I would have loved to see more of Trinity's story. On the other hand, it made me hopeful that maybe we get, if we get a second movie in this reboot, that it's going to be Trinity based. I would really like that. That'll be the video game. So I was reading Mm. about what the video game Enter the Matrix was because it like had long sequences directed by the Wachowskis. And they're like, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Apparently it was not a good game, like not actually fun to play, but it was something that was happening during the Matrix Reloaded that took scenes like you play as the side characters and some of the adventures that they were doing that were just sort of glossed over in the movie. It's because they happen in the video game. And so one reviewer of this that I was looking at was saying, this is a terrible precedent that it's actually, it's like you're sucking the blood from the movie. This would have been a cool thing in the movie, but instead you put it in this crappy video game. So I'm sure that's what's going to happen with all the dramatic Trinity evolution is it'll be a very contemplative video game where you'll just be dealing with your existence as a woman. And uh, it's going to be awesome. I do want to mention this as well. Also, another little bit of trivia. Chad is played by a man named Chad Stahelski, who directed the John Wick series with Keanu Reeves. And he also was his stunt double for the original Matrix trilogy. So he also was playing Neo. Right. And he is the sort of more masculine version of 
Neo, right? And one of the articles talks about that without using the words beta cuck. They, you know, he is, and of course, picking the name (laughs) Chad. Like, why why didn't they call her Becky instead of Tiffany? But like going with gender politics, especially kind of those gross tropes of the pickup artists, that was all very smartly done. And I forget which article it was, but they said either you will be exhausted by this or think it's clever and enjoy it. And I definitely enjoyed that. I picked up the name Chad at the time, but I didn't know those details about the actor playing Chad. I thought that made it even better. I was sort of thinking about what we were talking about with Trinity's family and the discussion of that when you move on, the things that you thought were meaningful turn out not to be meaningful, essentially. And I think we're kind of confusing a couple of different scenarios here. And I'm not sure whether these are questions that the movie asks or I don't think there are questions that the movie answers. Trinity's family in the new Matrix were computer programs designed to control her. Mm -hmm. And I think, Erica, to your point, it would have been totally justified in a way to, you know, it was justified to break free of that or symbolically beat up her children or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But when Neo is initially unplugged in the first movie, he has no ties to the real world. There's nothing keeping him there. That's true. The movie never really asks whether they're symbolic control mechanisms or whether they're his actual family because i don't think that having been unplugged from the matrix myself i would look back at dad and mom and think oh they were just put there to control me if they were real people who were suffering from the same imprisonment as i was then i think that's a totally different situation are any of those people people who are plugged into the matrix or are they programs I don't think we're sure. I think that Trinity's family are programs, but that everybody who's dive bombing out of the windows and things, I think those are real people. (sighs) Well, they justify in the first movie that, well, because they're part of the system, like anybody that hasn't broken free is part of the system. And so if you're fighting a system, you just shouldn't worry about how many random people you kill, even though the actual human beings in their pods will also die. But just the fact that like every time an agent would take control of a real person and then the agent would get killed, which you know happened a few times in the first movies, then he would turn back into the regular person. And you're just like, okay, Neo, you just murdered a real person. Maybe your moral duty should have been just to get the fuck out of there and not hurt anyone. But that's every superhero movie that doesn't deal with splash damage right and when superman throws zod through a building and like a bunch of people are gonna die as he goes through but unless it's like happens to be that one marvel movie that's dealing with it like no one gives a shit so really mark how is this any different from every other rando that gets killed in a movie i feel like we're sort of i don't know if losing the forest for the trees is the right way to put this but like when trinity sets aside her fake life to focus on the things that matter that's not addressing the point of whether connections you make in the matrix in this other world are real and valuable whether ai can be equivalent to humans and whether this is a human story i don't think the movies ever really try to answer the question of whether the matrix is real they sort of talk about it morpheus makes like a bunch of random questions as he's introducing Neo to the concept in the first movie, but then they never really address it because nobody does have connections inside the Matrix that might be valuable. The deep irony in that, Abe, is that people, even human people, behave so weirdly in these movies that they might not even pass the Turing test. Like the way Morpheus talks, you're like, am I talking to a computer? Like, what is even going on here? It's written a little bit differently. Like, and certainly in this fourth movie, we have such sympathetic AIs, they are more likable or 
that's maybe not the right word, but relatable, then like a lot of the very stiff upper lip, maybe not very well-drawn characters in episode two, the council members and the generals, and it's like, boy, you put less care into these humans than you put into these AIs in later movies. Part of that also, I think the casting in this film, in my opinion, is really excellent. I'm sure some people were frustrated that we didn't have some of the old actors represented. But I think the way they brought in Morpheus, what an interesting way to reanimate Morpheus. And Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, he's fantastic. We've seen him in a lot of stuff in the last couple of years, and he's just always fantastic. Jonathan Groff, I'm incredibly impressed with the way that he incorporated certain aspects of Smith, but also was completely his own. Neil Patrick Harris, not his fault, but I feel like those glasses were definitely a bit on the nose. He really, I think, added so much, and I would have never thought of him being in this movie, but there he was. Jessica Henwick, who played Bugs, and a sweet little cameo from Christina Ricci, who every time I see her in a show, I forget how much I love her. She's so weird and good and just has this magnetism on on screen. I wish I would have seen more of her. But I think that overall, a lot of why we care about these characters comes down to casting. And the characters did a great job of being themselves, but also giving a great nod to those past. Sorry, what was Christina Ricci? Because we saw her in the credits. I'm like, I don't remember seeing her in the film. Very briefly. She was like one of the reps from Warner Brothers. Okay. And Erica, aren't everyone's glasses on the nose? Oh, I almost said on the nose and on the nose, but I thought it was (laughs) two on the nose. But there you go. Thank you. One had to wonder a little bit about the exclusion of available actors from the earlier movies. Sure. And if it was strictly done for narrative purposes or if there was beef. Hugo Weaving was going to. He had to turn it down because scheduling conflicts. I don't think that Lawrence Fishburne was asked back. It was a very, very short. I was not invited. Maybe I'll get another play written is what he said. If there was another as a way to de-age him, if I feel like he would have had to be de-aged because that it's not that he this human being survived for this many years, but that it is that a computer duplicate was made. And this is why Smith should have also been, they should have looked exactly like they did in the first films. And that would have been a lot of CGI budget. I don't know if you're going to de-age them throughout the entire thing. I guess they've done it before and it would have been doable if you didn't have him in that many scenes. I think I was thinking of it more as, yeah, but this is literally a reboot. This is what we do when we play video games and they decided to change the look of Spider-Man in the Marvel video game because they wanted it to look more like Tom Holland than the guy it did originally, right? So we do this. This is something that is done in films and in video games. But this was not a reboot. I mean, this was as sequel as it gets. There was, or I guess, a revival, but... You're correct, but... Oh, I love when people say that. <laughs> You're correct. Narratively, it was they were rebooting the character, right? It was a duplication of the character in a new simulation. But it doesn't need to look the same. To me, that didn't bother me at all. And also, they did that with Neo and Trinity, too. They didn't look the same, which was a weird kind of strange concept how they did that. I think my problem was every time they showed clips of the video game, it was just the movie. And... I feel like something could have changed with that, where we actually make it look a little bit more like a video game and it's not just a direct film cut. I want somebody to do a YouTube clip where they just put Minecraft guys in those (laughs) really blocky, like like this was the video game that swept the nation and made him a multi-billionaire. 
one of the articles that I looked at was addressing a fan theory. Zion is in the Matrix, How Resurrections Honors the Warped Fan Theory. So the question was, again, what I said makes the magic, the superhero-ness amazing in the first film is because, like, you've established what the Matrix can do. Even though you've said, like, well, but Neo can kind of has the cheat codes and he can do more wonderful things. Once you see it, it's kind of, it's very cool. From there, it becomes like, well, what can we do outside the Matrix? And you reveal in the second movie that actually he has some, he can stop the robots in their tracks. So he has some sort of connection to the robot world even in the real world. Yet, it is funny how long it takes him when Agent Smith has somehow taken control of a human body. And so they fight in the normal world where, you know, nobody has access to magic powers. And it takes Neo so long to admit, even though this guy is doing an exact Mr. Anderson impression, that is not a good impression of that. But uh, It's not terrible, not terrible. It takes him a while to, to it, I can't believe it. It's amazing. That, like that they suspend that, disbelief. It just raises the issue, this fan theory, this article was saying that, oh, the Wachowskis have actually acknowledged that, that maybe actually, right, it's revealed and reloaded that it's not just that the one is like a glitch in the program, it's that this was something that was included in the program to express the inevitable rebellious feelings that people would have. So the same theory goes for maybe even all Zion is fake, that there's a matrix within the matrix, which then allows you to do magic things in the supposedly real world because it is also a simulation. I don't know. Did you find that this is helpful to think about this at all? It's kind of predictable that in a inception sort of way that it can be matrices all the way down as much as necessary. It's also, I guess, by its very nature, not falsifiable. So kind of who cares? Like it could well be, but unless it's like acknowledged, narratively i don't know really what to do with that or to like be somehow more informed like it certainly makes sense and it kind of makes everything pretty damn meaningless but other than that i love it did you guys happen to see there was a um a little viral video i saw it on twitter where keanu reeves is talking to is it like a director i want to say he's like having dinner at a director's house or something and he has kids and the kids are asking him about the matrix because they're you know younger they're like abe here they had never seen it. So the guy's like, yeah, tell him what the Matrix is about. And he goes, oh, so he explains like the idea, the plot. He's like, so basically this guy is trying to figure out like what's real and what's not. And it, the reality that we, he wants to live in. And the girl go, little girl goes, who cares? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I saw some commentary on this on, uh, you know, as Twitter is wont to do, where some people were like, oh my gosh, what's happening to our culture? Young kids don't get it anymore. And then other people are like, no, that's freaking right like for the kids to be so in tune to this virtual world and creating their own versions of themselves online that is just as much real as their quote-unquote real life it's just where you're putting the meaning into it i like that a lot what do you think about that abe mark yeah let's ask the kid what do you think about that i think that is a an interesting and discussion worthy take from the kid in question that the movie never addresses. Kind of like I've been saying, I don't feel like the theme, unlike some other media that involve being trapped in a virtual world that I've seen, which are explicitly about this, the Matrix does not seem concerned with really discussing whether 
things that happen in a virtual world are meaningful. People ask the question using their mouths, but it's never entertained narratively. Nobody ever has to make the choice whether to trust a program. Like, that's never made a main plot point. Nobody ever has to choose whether to take their virtual life as the real one or reject it and fight for humanity, except for the one villain in the first movie who is... I was thinking about Reagan. Yeah. Yeah, but he's one-dimensionally portrayed as wrong. Nobody ever says, we had to kill that guy because he was against us, but sometimes I think that he was right. It's never discussed in the movies, but I think that is a discussion-worthy point. Yeah, there's a lot of, don't you wish you had taken the blue pill after all? There's some griping, including by that initial villain. But yeah, we're supposed to, again, not care about the relationships that people have in the Matrix, except maybe, you know, in the last movie with Neo and Trinity. And that's because they'll eventually get to the truth. And because there's a real foundation for their relationship outside the Matrix. But we're supposed to really care about, in the second and third movie, Link, Harold Perrineau, the guy who's on Lost. And his girlfriend, whose name I couldn't figure out which character in this IMDb page is her. But like, we're really supposed to care about that they're, you know, making great sacrifices for each other and saving each other at the last minute. You know, these characters that have barely any energy has been put into making us care about them. But that's happening in the real world. So that matters. Or it's happening in the meta matrix, as the <laughs> fan theory suggests. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't know. It would make it more powerful. I don't know. What do you think about this? The fact that like in Free Guy, there's such a complete distinction between the real world and, you know, there's a little bit of action sequences. I don't know if you guys saw this. Did you guys see this movie Free Guy? Yeah, really enjoyed it. So there's a little bit of like, I've got to get the code out of the building and I will duck into the bathroom to avoid the security guards. Like that's the level of intrigue that goes on in the real world. But then in the virtual world, anything goes and buildings are collapsing and things are exploding that if there was a stronger contrast like that, you know, so we get some action sequences when they're defending Zion in the third movie that are just as amped up as anything that happens in the Matrix. And even though it might be that nobody's actually going beyond, physically beyond human capabilities, there's no magic involved, but it's just as unbelievable. Like some of the, the narrow escapes that they get away with. I don't know if it would have helped or if it only works for comedic effect to exaggerate how mundane the real world is and should be. Well, I think that's part of the point of the Matrix, at least in the first one. The selling point, the premise is that the Matrix is at least initially indistinguishable from reality. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's exactly part of the message, but the argument is that even though they are indistinguishable, the characters still choose to fight for what's real and that there must be some sort of intrinsic value in that, even if you couldn't even tell the difference, still having authenticity is important in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think the clear implication at the end of the first movie that this is not just merely an alternate metaphysics, you know, like an alternate history movie. I was thinking an alternate metaphysics movie. What if reality really had angels and demons in it? It's a whole class of movies. But like you could see this is OK. This is just a sci fi situation like 12 monkeys or something. It's really a post apocalyptic, but there's time travel and blah, blah, blah. But it's actually set up that like, oh, what's really going to make this resonate if I say at the end of the first movie Hey, now I'm talking directly to you, the audience. You're actually in the Matrix. And I'm going to be like the Buddha and come back, even though I've achieved escape from this meaningless plane of illusion, I'm going to come back and compassionately set you all free. And if you take the filmmakers to be telling us, we are actually all caught in like a capitalist rut, in gender contracts that don't actually reflect human nature, stuff like that, then there really is supposed to be something 
that is going on here that is addressing the real world. I do think the first movie does us the courtesy of not making that decision for us, right? We can elect to think that we are in the Zion universe or we're in the Matrix universe, and that's open for interpretation. I mean, again, ultimately, is meta or fourth wall breaking as it wants to be? Of course, it's just a movie and we get that, but it's clearly something they want us to think about. In a lot of ways, I think it would have been more effective if we had never gotten the second or third movie. Because Zion as an idea works a lot better than as an actual realized place. I think it's, as world building goes, I don't find it to be particularly compelling or believable. And it's just not, not my bag, but... You didn't like the three-minute sweaty dancing video as representing what human beings in the real world are like when they get together and celebrate? That's usually the part of Matrix 2 that people rip down, is that... <laughs> I don't really think that any aspect of Zion worked for me. But I'm not going to start listing points. In this film, for me, Zion works better I and know, is more yeah, hopeful. The, the idea that machines and humans can work together and maybe we could make something awesome together is really exciting. It doesn't feel as dark. And I think part of the reason I didn't like second and third so much is because we didn't see as much of the Matrix. And yeah, maybe I'm a basic bitch, but maybe I want to live more in a happy world, even if it's fake. It just seemed so awful where they were before. And the more that we just saw them like floating through space and having terrible beds to sleep on. And like, I'm just always like, you can't do better than this. Really? This is all you got? This time I felt like it was a bit more welcoming and there had been some progress that was made. Abe, any closing thoughts on this whole discussion? I guess to that point, I think part of what was interesting about Zion as an idea was that because the world of the Matrix was so recognizable to us, because it all took place in familiar settings, it was easier to think of it as something worth fighting for. Not the Matrix itself, obviously, but the people who were trapped there. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas it was difficult to empathize with the aliens who lived in a place near the core of the Earth. I guess in that way, the new movie, as Erica was saying, was more effective in at least potentially making the human machine society something that we might want to fight for. I think that might be the the implication of the last movie at the end of like, hey, thanks. First, I liked your work on How I Met Your Mother and back to Doogie. But, you know, thanks for making this new Matrix for giving us another chance. So I got to think that there really are real people still. It's a big deal in the end of the second movie where the architect that Neo comes and he's like... If you're going to be such a jerk about the Matrix, fine, I'll just unplug it and kill everyone. And that's a real thing to worry about. To think that it's just been swept under the rug and that Neo and Trinity are the only real people in the new Matrix, I don't think makes sense. I think we have to assume that the rest of the humanity still is there in this new Matrix and is there to be saved, even if the solution is not to unplug them. Maybe if you live in a crappy enough place, it's okay to have virtual worlds. You should just know that they're virtual. You should have a choice to be in them or not. You could be in them some of the time. You know, we're getting into what these artificial worlds, what do they call the the internet of real things? What do they call it? What VR is supposed to be should still be something that you could experience if in your regular life you have to just eat gruel. So the matrix and the real world can exist in some sort of harmony. And that's where we should be going with this. Are you talking about Mark Zuckerberg's Donculus metaverse where we're yes the metaverse that's the word i was trying to remember of the thing that's supposed to come so i think that ultimately you know this was a hopeful thing and 
Yeah, if you can't find meaning with real other people in a virtual land, you're not going to find it in a supposedly real land either. And maybe what seems to screw things up, you know, if this is supposed to be a capitalist critique, is that we have in whatever environment that we're in, that we have all this bullshit that we're just supposed to do. And so if there's a lot of needless suffering and people working five jobs in the matrix or outside the matrix so that they can't actually do anything meaningful with their lives, that's the problem. That's what the Neo and Trinity should be solving, fighting for justice and making it so that we can actually feel like we have free choices, whatever that means, right? You could still be in the virtual world and have free choices. Yeah. All right. Mark, I'll give you a choice. So um, Morpheus's choice, truly. I mean, if this premise were given to you, red pill, blue pill, continue in your existence or step into some reality that you have no conception of, not making a choice, I guess, is the blue pill. So what would you do? I would save the red pill until I was older and about to die anyway. <laughs> then I would take that red pill and I would wake up and I'd be a shiny new baby in a cocoon. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's an interesting take. You're the clubhouse leader with that answer. Erica, go. I used to definitely say that I would take the red pill. And the older I get, I feel like maybe I would just stick with the blue pill. Because you actually at least know what this is. If it looks like a hellscape, but it's the real world, like that's not a lot of comfort to me if it's just fucking terrible. Then I know I'm being controlled. If I have the option, I can just be like Thomas and go to my therapist and talk about I don't know if this is real or not. And then they just ground me in the reality that's there. That was one of the scariest parts of that movie to me was like, yeah, this feels like a real therapist. And then it made me start questioning everything. But you know what? I feel better as a human when I'm grounded. So if that means blue pill, then I guess I'm a wuss. You're an old lady. All right, Abe, what about you? You're a kid. Um, To take the red pills to enter a reality of which I have no conception And if I don't know what the choice I'm making is, then it's not a choice. So I'd take the red pill to find out what else there is. And then I'd have another choice to make this time informed. Damn. Damn. Take a little bit of the red pill. I just want a little bit. I just want to munch the edge so I can see clairvoyantly. All right, Brian. I would see if I can get like a bag of blue pills. When he was taking his pharmaceuticals and they were blue, it's like, wait a second. The pills I take are blue. Like I was like, this is great. I'm all for it. I just want the cheat codes. I don't mind staying in the Matrix. I just want each pill to get rid of my cancer or whatever. You know, the, the... <laughs> We should be able to take advantage of being in an illusory world is what I'm saying. We should all get a little bit of superhero mojo. Oh, I like that. I think the joys and the challenges of this world are just fine with me. My relationships and my conceptions, I'm still figuring things out, but I don't need a whole new set of them, whatever they are. So blue pills all the way. All right, well, thank you for doing this season one pretty much pop reunion. Uh, We will keep talking a little with Brian Erica and Abe in the supporter portion. You can go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop to get that. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to you guys. Yeah. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's great to meet you, Abe. Great to meet you, too. So long. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy vs. Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, 
And it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.